Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast, kindly sponsored by IMO, a leading technology-led residential real estate platform designed to create quality portfolios of existing single-family rental housing at speed and scale. Find out more at imo.capital. And now, on with the podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Samantha Kemp, who is the CIO and co-founder of IMO, which is a leading European prop tech platform, creating single-family rental portfolios at speed and scale. And the business recently raised $75 million in Europe's largest ever PropTech Series B fundraise to support the development of technology throughout the residential value chain while solving the problems of all parties, investors, residents, and sellers. So welcome to the podcast, Sam, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me back. So last time you came on the podcast was well over a year ago now. We talked about using technology and data to make the right strategic and acquisition decisions. And since then, the world has changed so dramatically in general, but also particularly in the investment space. And of course, we've started working together at IMO. Today, I was thinking that we could focus on the question on everyone's mind, which is around what's happening in the market and how investors can navigate through turbulent, inflationary, very volatile times. So let's start with that. Despite changes in the market, residential tends to remain a stable investment because we all need a roof over our heads. What has changed in the residential investment strategies that you and the investors you work with are choosing as a result of wider market changes? Yeah, good question. Understatement that uh, things have been changing over the past months. I think the fundamentals for residential remain extremely strong and investors, I think, are pretty unanimous in their agreement of that. Because like you said, everyone needs a roof over their heads. Residential is ultimately serving a basic human need. So the demand never just disappears. And if anything, there's you know increasing demand you know and the supply is actually becoming even more restricted with rising debt costs construction costs going up it's making the numbers you know even harder to stack up for new supply coming to the market plus it's even harder because of the debt costs going up the interest rates the affordability of mortgages is really under strain so you know the ability for people to buy instead of rent is also coming under a lot of pressure. So you have um, decreasing supply and increasing rental demand. So from a you know rental growth story, it's incredibly strong. Obviously, there's challenges around affordability and things like that. And um, you know people have started talking a lot about it over 2022, but I think over 2023, that's going to become an even more important topic for people as they actually start to see affordability issues flowing through to residents. I think, you know, there's been some insane rental growth in various parts of the country, especially even over the past 12 months, that is not sustainable. So we'll see how that continues over the next 12 months. But from an investment perspective as well, I'd mentioned already the debt costs have been going up. Construction costs have also been going up, which means that a lot of the built-to-rent schemes that investors had been chasing and now, you know, the numbers were always hard to stack up on a bill to rent and required premium rents. But now the numbers are even harder to stack up. So again, you've got supply constraints for bill to rent schemes. And just in general, and this, isn't, this really isn't just a residential issue, it's sort of a real estate issue, is that investors are needing price chips to be able to, you know, they're needing discounts on the pricing now to be able to meet their returns. But that bid-ask spread is still very wide. 
And as a result, there haven't been a huge number of transactions in the markets. So I think you know it's still to be seen which side of that bid-ask spread is going to move first and by how much. But hopefully, I think also people are just sort of sitting and waiting to see who starts moving. So hopefully we start getting some transactions happening in a Q1. And then that will give people a bit more confidence to kind of understand a bit better where pricing is coming in at. Yeah. Okay. Great summary there. So residential, as we said, tends to be seen as a safe place to store and to preserve capital, which is obviously great for times like we're in with this volatility, with inflation, with higher interest rates. An institutional single family rental investment, which has become a really substantial market segment in the US, there's some cities where it's a third of the market, it's becoming a hotter subsector in European markets now. What kind of investors are actually putting capital into European single family rental property now? And how do you see that changing going forward? Yeah, so there's been a bit of a difference between what happened in the US and what has happened from an SFR perspective in Europe so far. So in the States, SFR, it really came about post-GFC when Blackstone started buying a lot of assets, existing assets they were buying, and realized it actually can be efficient to be able to manage granular dispersed portfolios when you're doing it at scale and using some technology. So in the US, the SFR market has been mainly focused on existing stock. Yes, there is new build stock in there as well, but the majority of it is existing. What has happened in Europe so far is, yes, people have started moving into single family rentals. But in in the UK in particular, it's mainly so far to date been through a build to rent play. They've just sort of extended the build to rent play that they were doing with multifamily and they've just taken that next step. Um, doing it for single family rental. But the reality is that, you know, build to rent really constitutes less than 2% of the resi market. The remaining 98% is the rest of the resi market, which is granular apartments, granular houses, or sort of quite small multifamily blocks, the size that is typically too small for institutions to be targeting. And that 98% is the most liquid and voluminous sector. And it's the space that we specialize in. So what we have seen actually over the past few months is, as I was saying earlier, the build to rent side is the numbers are getting harder and harder to stack up. But the fundamentals for residential remain very strong. And there is a lot of dry powder in the market. There's a lot of capital waiting on the sidelines, wanting to deploy, just trying to figure out what the right strategies are. And what they are very attracted to with the IMO proposition is because we are targeting the most liquid and voluminous sector, the speed to deploy the capital and the scale at which we can deploy is very attractive. And then we're doing sort of relatively minimal capex works through retrofits and we're essentially providing stabilized income within just a few months of deployment. So investors are very attracted by the speed and scale of the deployment opportunity and then also the speed of that stabilized income generation. But in terms of the specific types of investors you see, it's really opening up. It's very broad. So, you know, we've got people approaching us, the PE funds who, you know, see the current crisis as, you know, a catalyst for SFR in Europe, the same way that the GFC was the catalyst for Blackstone unlocking SFR in the US. ESG is still a very, very top agenda point for investors. And I'm really pleased that's not going anywhere. People aren't sacrificing ESG to be able to make the numbers stack up is still very much an important agenda point. And pension funds, 
are becoming very attracted to, you know, the Imre proposition by the ability to retrofit existing housing stock and have a material environmental impact. And then also raise living standards for people within existing areas, because that is a huge issue. You know, it's a huge issue across Europe, but, you know, particularly in the UK, it's a very transparent issue. And DLUC, the Department of Leveling Up in Communities and Housing, they published a white paper earlier this year that said, I think it was at 23% of existing private rental stocks, so that's most of the apartments and houses that people live in, 23% was substandard. And 12% was what they classed as a category one hazard, which meant it wasn't even fit for human habitation. You know, and you have the horrific stories like that two-year-old boy who died from mold in his apartment. So there's very real consequences and impact of the poor quality of housing stock in this country. So, you know, pension funds, especially the local authorities, pension funds or regionally focused pension funds, the ability to have such a material environmental and social impact in their own backyards is very attractive. So that was a very long answer, but you can see it's really from the private equity funds all the way through to the pension funds. You know, a lot of investors are coming out of the woodwork now seeing SFR as an investment opportunity that wasn't there previously. And, you know, just put some numbers about it. I think over the past month, we've now issued, we've now responded to requests for proposals, totaling about 3 billion of deployment. So there's a lot of interest coming through, which is really great news for the SFR sector. Mm-hmm. Brilliant answer. Thank you. And so just to touch on the energy performance stand or energy efficiency standards that you referred to, There's obviously increased regulation around environmental performance and and energy performance in homes. The concern that a lot of private investors who historically have owned this stock have is that it's expensive to upgrade properties to the right energy performance rating, which will be a legal minimum EPC of C. And obviously, we know that EPCs aren't the perfect measure, but it's a very helpful benchmark to have. And by contrast, institutional investors often have a longer time horizon or see asset management as just an essential part of doing business. The concern is, are improvements efficient and are they as effective as possible? And in turbulent times where there's so much that we can't control, even more emphasis goes into quality asset management. So I wondered what changes you've made to your processes and operations to take into account things like the minimum energy efficiency standards and in general, increased attention on the quality of asset management across the sector. Yeah, no, you're right there. Given the current market, there hasn't been any particular change for us from an EPC or you know environmental perspective because it's always been a high priority. We've always known that rental properties will need to meet a minimum of EPCC. So that's not a change that's coming in within the next couple of years. So that's always been part of the plan. And, you know, because for us, it's also, you know, not just from an environmental perspective, but also, as you said, you know, an asset management perspective in terms of it's really important to reset the asset day one. When you're working with existing stock, you obviously want to try and create as standardized a product as possible to minimize your asset management burden. So by resetting the property day one, you know, whether it's the appliances, the, you know, fixtures, fittings, general fit out standards, you know, we're standardizing everything as much as possible to minimize any ongoing OPEX. Plus, also, as I said before, really about raising living standards, which is just generally not up to scratch in in existing areas. And I also think the retrofit piece is super, super important for 
you know, not just in residential, but across the real estate sector, the retrofit pieces is not an easy one, but it is incredibly important, you know, if we are to achieve the net zero targets that we know that we're aiming for. And the reality is, you know, I mean, there's huge amounts of carbon emissions coming from existing housing stock that needs to be retrofitted and is completely inefficient. And the reality is, as you said, a lot of the mom and pop landlords, the private landlords, either they don't care <laughs> or they don't know how, you know, even if they do want to do the works, they just don't know how to go about it efficiently. It doesn't feel like there's anything particularly coordinated on mass at scale across this country to support these private landlords upgrading these properties. So, you know, especially within the next two years, I generally don't know how they're going to do it. So there really is a role and a place, a very important role that institutions in the private sector have to play here. You know, just the amount of coordination, efficiency, and scale that institutions can step into this space with and really play their role in retrofitting these properties. You know, they can really have a material impact on that 98% of the resi market that I was referencing earlier. You know, the reality is they won't have a material impact on net zero if they're only targeting 2%, the 2% end, which is built to rent. You know, and also they're sort of conveniently forgetting about the embodied carbon that's being released during the construction process. I'm not saying they shouldn't do build to rent because there is clear undersupply of new housing. So we need more housing stock being built. But I really would love for people to understand and realize that isn't the only option. And actually, the greenest building is the one that already exists. So if you're really out to make a very material environmental impact, positive impact, you know, you should be targeting existing housing stock and working with parties, whether it's MO, whether it's other parties, on figuring out how to be retrofitting our existing housing stock. And ultimately, it all comes down to what consumers need in residential property, because renting properties, owning properties is a consumer facing business. So I wondered what you're actually seeing in terms of change in demand and preferences from residents. And that might be in the UK, but also across the other markets. Germany and Spain, for example, in Europe. Yeah. I mean, obviously, affordability is really top of mind. In in all countries we're operating in, UK, Germany and Spain, um, affordability is becoming very important for people. People are very conscious of their energy prices, understandably. There's areas of Germany or where, you know, their energy bills have gone up more than 200% over the past year. It's, you know, that hurts. That really hurts people. So a lot of people are paying much closer attention to what their expected energy bills will be. Therefore, if they are moving, they're looking for homes that are going to be more energy efficient, where the lower energy bills are not going to be such a burden for them. And that's something that people are actually starting to ask about as well up front. I think people had maybe asked what the energy consumption was of a property, but they hadn't, not everyone used to ask it. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily a make or break when it came to people sort of working out what they could afford to pay from a rental perspective. But it's obviously now a very material part of people's budgeting calculations. I think also what we've seen is if possible, residents are trying not to move. They're aiming to keep their existing rental pricing in place if possible and not incur the costs related to moving. Obviously, people still have to move for various reasons. So it's not that there's no rental liquidity in the market at all. So, you know, it's quite the opposite. As I said, there's actually increasing demand because people are no longer buying in the way, buying their own homes in the way that they were. But, um, you know, that is something where 
you know, residents are looking to try and stay put if they can, which, you know, which is also not a, you know, it's also a good thing for the landlords, for the housing providers, you know, to have less churn on their properties as well and less voids in between residents. Mm. So then of those needs and preferences, we talked about affordability, energy performance as a factor of affordability and also sort of stability of tenure. How can professional investors or investors working with MO actually make sure they meet those requirements? For us, we don't aim to sort of just charge the highest rents we can out of tenants. You know, we aim to be targeting rents that are below the 30% of household income. So rents that are sustainable for our tenants. And we've we've been successful in doing that across our portfolios to date. So, you know, there's having sort of principles in place mm. like that. And then there's also, you know, just the fact that inherently we are retrofitting all of our properties and maxing out as much as we can to minimize energy costs for our residents. So, yeah. you know, that's no different to what we were doing pre-crisis, but it's just, it's, um, it's sort of reinforcing the point that it's the right thing to be doing. Fantastic. And if listeners want to find out more about you, Emo, or what you do, or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, please check out our website, www.imo.capital, or check out our LinkedIn page. We have quite a lot of sort of social media content going up there. And I'm more than happy for people to reach out to me. Just send me a message on LinkedIn and we can get in touch. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me, Sam. And thanks for listening. All right. Thanks so much, Anna. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. And thanks to Imo for sponsoring this episode. Email hello at imo.capital for more information. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast. Bye for now.